Sunday evening. Next Sunday evening, 22nd, I believe that is. Some of our young men of the congregation that especially were involved in EPIC are going to be bringing the lessons and the singing and so forth next Sunday evening. So that should be, I want you to come and be a part of that, even if Sunday night's not part of your regular routine uh, to be here. I hope you'll be here. They, one, it'll encourage them, and another, you'll be amazed and blessed by being able to be a part of that. And so I just want to get that in your, in your thinking. That's next Sunday evening, and that'll be a wonderful time. You know, throughout the pages of the Bible, we, we find those minorities. We find those people who are struggling to figure out exactly what to do and how to do it. And maybe they want to serve God, but people around them pressure them in a different direction. It's been that way from the beginning of time, I guess, that we've been pressured by the majority. I think we recognize that especially in a country like ours where we find the voices of others have a great impact on us. If you're a politician, you want to listen to the polls. You want to hear what the majority of the people are. If you want to be elected to office, you got to listen to the people in a way, I guess. I've never been in that position. Don't want to be in that position. Sometimes even as Christians, we find ourselves in a position where the majority, the larger number, is the people who put the pressure on. Or sometimes it's just the world. Just the world doing that. So I want us to think about something today. I call the lesson, Don't Get Lost in the Numbers. And we're going to go to 2 Samuel the 18th and it, chapter, and it may seem like a little bit of an odd passage to go to, but I think you'll understand why when we get to it and get done with it. Because sometimes what we find is that our internal thinking or our, our internal processes become our worst enemies in life. We become the thing that we, that engenders, I should say, that engenders the most fear in us much more than other people do. And sometimes it's really hard to tell who the real enemy is or, or why that person or persons really is the enemy. Charles Custer, who was an elder in the Drexel congregation when I was preaching there, used to quote every now and then in some of our meetings, would quote the old Pogo comic strip, and he would use that line, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I think we recognize the reality of it because for sure we recognize that sometimes we are our own worst enemy. And we recognize that in groups and organizations, it is quite often the internal strife that causes the greatest problems, that causes the downfall of teams, of organizations, of even governments. Uh, and, and I was thinking about this week, I was trying to think, where, where do I go to illustrate this? Because we often find that things that come together and have some success fall apart in a short period of time. Musical groups are noted for that, bands and organizations, especially, you might say, those rock and roll bands. Uh, in 1996, a movie by the title, That Thing You Do, amplified that idea. Maybe you saw it. It was kind of a cute little movie. Uh, and it told the story of a, a localized band that hit it big with a song on the charts. And the ba band became what is commonly known as a one-hit wonder. They even played on that in the, in the movie. But the idea is that the band has this success, and before long, the internal strife and the way that they're working together, the way they're talking together, the way they deal with one another, the band becomes so disjointed by that internal strife and the differences that are there that they just kind of dissolve and fall apart. 
And frankly, that's a story that's quite common in a lot of things, in a lot of organizations, and a lot of bands. Even kingdoms have fallen apart as a result of enemies that come from within. Maybe that's why Paul is noted for that proverb in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, where he simply says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We think we got it all together, and the next thing we know, are falling apart. Life's kind of that way, isn't it? But in such a way, David's kingdom nearly fell. At least on the outside, it looks that way. But with God's providence, with support of friends, with some good thought, his kingdom was able to stand. I'm going to call your attention to that passage in 2 Samuel 18. In those first six verses that are there in that chapter. Because this is a story in which Absalom, his son, the really good-looking son, becomes a traitor and tries to take over his father's kingdom. And as David has run away from this event and from Absalom, he needs to turn and, and make a stand. And so as it says, and David numbered the people who were with him. Remember the title of the lesson. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab and one-third under the hand of Abishai and the son of Zariah and Joab's brother and one-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out for... If we flee, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, whatever is best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went, went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out to the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Now you can read on in the story, and I know this is just kind of in the middle of the story that's going on here, but you recognize David is in an odd position. He's really caught in a very difficult situation because we recognize who we're talking about. And in this case, David is dealing with the enemy within. We know how he's dealt with the enemy without. We recognize from the time he was a young man, and of course, people everywhere recognize the David and Goliath scenario, even if they don't know the whole story. If you've ever been into a, a Bible class, you probably looked at the story of David and Goliath somewhere along. Maybe you've looked at it as a child or maybe even as an adult and all the implications that you may draw out of that story. But something that you might note is immediately after David goes into this, and there's the victory over the Philistines in that case, not only the giant, but over the Philistines. The women begin to chant, and they praise the king, Saul has slain his thousand, but they begin to praise David, and they begin to say, David has slain his ten thousands. Yes, he's faced the Philistine, the giant, and the army. He's fought battle after battle, but he has also been pursued by the king, who's 
jealous of him and the problems that arise there and you can read the whole story and it's a and it's a great story to read but as David rises he becomes a great king a great warrior a great leader he's a valiant warrior under Saul he's a valiant leader even in his his kind of separation from Saul and ultimately as he becomes king first for part of the kingdom and then ultimately the whole kingdom David is that loved king today you hear about David, 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 and everybody thinks about that great warrior king, that great leader of the people. And David was loved by most of the people who were his devoted followers. Even when things were amiss, you can go into a few chapters further into the 23rd chapter of this book, and you find they're trying to bring things together. There, there are things going on and struggles that are taking place as it recounts something that happened much earlier. David was so loved by those who were around him. Some of his closest men were ready to risk their lives just to get him a drink of water. They just heard him say, oh, I'd love to drink water from the well of Bethlehem again. That's where he grew up. And you know how that feels. Oh, I'd just leave, love to drink water from that well again. That'd be kind of like me saying, I'd love to drink water from that old garden hose in the backyard. again." Well, maybe not quite the same, but close to that. It's those memories, isn't it? It's those things. And so some three of his special men go and they break through and they get that water and they bring it back to him. That's how much they love David. They risk their lives. People love David. Even, as I said, even in troubling times, they loved him as he tries to bring the kingdoms together and and Abner is killed by Joab and so forth. And David still stands out. And even in his troubles, it says they still loved him. Second Samuel 3, they loved everything David did. But just because, just because generally he is loved. And we can look in our own history and we can recognize those who have been loved in the history of our nation. We can recognize leaders of our nation. We can find, their, we can find memorials to them. We can find their faces on sides of mountains. There will still be people who will say, yeah, but, yeah, but. Because there are always going to be people who have a problem with somebody who is even extremely popular. And there were those who did of David. Because jealousy, perhaps, is one of the most powerful motives. Yes. Or maybe you just felt like he didn't do for you what he should have done. And that's a part of what Absalom played upon. He's saying, I'm going to do for you what my father didn't do. I'm going to take care of you in ways my father didn't take care of you. I'm going to do things for you. I'm going to be on your side. So David's son, Absalom, became his enemy. Can you imagine that? That's hard to imagine, but it happens. It still happens today. And there's a story that goes with that, of course, the relationship began to unravel when his half-brother, Amnon, abused his own sister, full-blood sister, and he ultimately killed Amnon, and, and there was that rift between him and David, and then the time passes. Finally, they seem like they get things back together, and when he's brought back to Jerusalem, seems to be in good company again. What does he do? But he begins to undermine his father. He goes out to the people in the gates, and he listens to their cases as they come before the judges and so forth, and he says, oh, if I were just in charge, I would do this for you. And he begins to play up to the people. Sounds a lot like a politician, doesn't it? I would just do that for you if only I were the king I would do these things for you and it begins a revolt 
And he pulls aside, and he pulls aside leaders, and he pulls aside important people. And he begins his march upon the capital. And he marched his army to Jerusalem. And as he gathered his forces and pulled himself and began to march toward Jerusalem, David did something I think we would not have expected. David gathered what he had there, his loyal forces, and he fled. Receiving word of what was happening there, he fled even further. And I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that once he flees Jerusalem, once he makes his way and he crosses over the river and he's, he's away and he's safe for a time, we find that he begins to muster his forces. And he gathers the hundreds and he gathers the thousands. And you're saying, if you could gather hundreds and thousands, why didn't he make his stand at Jerusalem? Why didn't he make his stand at his capital? Why in the world would he run away like this? Well, maybe there is some, some intelligence to it all. But as we look at David's responsive actions, when he responds to what was happening there, look at how he handled it. He gathered, he numbered, he divided, and he sent his forces to fight with a proviso. And this is David. If we never see David, you see him here. Here's the warrior, here's the king, here's the leader. He's got his forces ready. And what does he do? He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Here is the guy that's turned against him. Here's the guy that would have killed him. Here's the guy who is fighting against his forces. Here's a murderous son. Deal gently with the young man Absalom for my sake. And later when Absalom is dead, he weeps. Yes, his forces were victorious. There's no doubt about it. He was the king. He was the leader. He was the warrior. He knew what he was doing. With the army under Joab and the other two leaders, there was no doubt in the outcome of this conflict. And his, vo his forces are victorious. And as you read the story, you recognize Absalom is killed. It's kind of a strange story about his head getting caught in a tree and, of course, Joab then going and killing him himself. But still the day is won. David's kingdom is to be restored. And you say, what has this got to do with us? It's an interesting story, but I think, do we wonder? Do we wonder? Because as I go back to this, it's really about who's going to be in charge and where the numbers really are. Because one of the, you notice that one of the first things that David does is he gathers his people and starts counting them. Have I told you how lousy preachers are? Other ones, uh, you know, if I ever become one, I'll, I'll be lousy too, but I'm not, I'm not going to work in that direction. Preachers are the most egotistical guys I know. You wonder what I'm getting at, don't you? I've told some of you before, and you've heard me say it, you go and meet some preachers at a gathering sometime where preachers are and everything, they'll ask you, they'll ask you two questions. Usually they ask me three. 
And when they recognized who I was, they said, how's your dad? Well, they quit doing that now. So there's only two questions they ask now. Where are you now? Well, I always think I'm standing right here. What do you mean by I'm standing right in front of you? Where am I? Where are you? You know, that's the question. They mean, where are you preaching now? Okay. Well, I'm with the Southern Ridge Church in Oklahoma City. Great. Next question. You know what it is? How many people do you have? You know, there's a great line in the scriptures. The Lord can win with few or many. As we were studying today, you know, studying Bible class today, it wasn't Deborah and Barak's victory. It was God's victory. That's the way it was. The Lord could win with few or many. That's the way it goes. But what I look at this story and what I recognize is sometimes we're, we're dealing with challenges in our lives and sometimes things that seem like the forces are large against us. Sometimes when we look around and we see that the numbers are few and we start saying, well, okay, we'll do this, we'll do that. And I think about over the years, in the 21 years that we've been working within the confines of this congregation in this building here. I say confines, that's not a good word, but you understand what I mean. In the cooperation of this congregation here. We've tried all kinds of things. We've knocked doors. We've had, we've had meetings. We've gathered together. We've, we've, sent, we've used radio messages. We've had newspaper messages. We've, we've sent out things. We've contacted. We've had visitation groups. We've continued, and we continue to do these things. And we continue to do these things. In other, in other words, the efforts have been there to try and spread the message, have the gospel out there. And we recognize that we are going into a society that doesn't necessarily want to hear all the things that we might have to say. What are we to do? I think we can learn something from David here. I think David has something to offer to us. Because we need to point the answers to practice. What are the questions? The questions are, how do you deal with an unimaginable happening? Here he has his son coming down. And this has got to be one of the worst moments in his life. He's had some others, but this is one of the worst moments in his life. The second question is, how do you confront an enemy which, for which you had not prepared? And then the third one. And I think all of them are really kind of one together. But the third one is, is how do you turn retreat and fear into courage and advancement? I think we need it, don't you? I think we need it within our time, within our society, within many of the things that have gone on around us, in us, and are happening to us. I think we need something that says, how do you turn retreat and fear into courage and advancement? When we look into our society, when we look at plagues, and when we look at problems, when we look at division, we say, how do you turn retreat into courage and advancement? When you look at some of the decisions that go on in our society, how do you turn retreat and fear, hesitance, into courage and advancement? Friends, we will face personal. We all do. Face personal and group hardships for which we may be ill-prepared. They may come in a, a variety of forms, and they can be dead, deathly to us, emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes even physically, I guess. But I think we can 
draw something from David's story. And so using David's approach, using it from a spiritual vein, using it as Christians, notice what he does first. When, when it, the announcement is there that Absalom and his army are coming, what does he do? He ducks and finds cover. Does that sound like David? It doesn't really sound like David, does it? David's the young man that runs into the field when nobody else would go out in the field, when it seems like it's got to be the end of things, when the king says, you can't go and do this. But in this case, duck and find cover. What I mean is, sometimes looking for that immediate miracle may not be the best choice. Well, we're just going to stand up and God will take care of it is not necessarily the smartest thing. Sometimes that's like stepping out into the street in front of a a fast-moving bus. God will stop the bus if the driver has good brakes. I don't mean to be silly, and I don't mean to undermine, and I don't mean to take away from God in any way, but to act foolishly, to run into the midst of something without giving it thought, is not what God necessarily calls on us to do. David ducks and finds cover. Remember who won the end. He ducks and finds cover, but the next thing he does is regroup to face the conflict. In other words, he does come back to that thinking. He does come back to that that opportunity. He takes care of basic needs, including the safety, the nourishment, and the the spiritual nourishment of the people. I think some of we look at things and we want to run headlong and say, I've got to take that on. I've got to grab hold of that. Or else we just run away and hide. But what David does is he comes back and he says, okay, here's what we've got. Now we're going to put everything we've got. Notice this. He says, we're going to put everything we've got into this with some thought but what he has done is regroup to face the conflict isn't that smart the more you think about it the more you realize there was more smarts to what David was doing than you might have initially thought this isn't cowardice you know the old adage that discretion is the better part of valor You know, sometimes you run away to fight another day. When the bully is swinging his fish, you don't necessarily stick your nose out there and hope it gets hit. Regroup and face the conflict. Thirdly, set a plan of attack and conditions on it. David doesn't go out with just a murderous ploy. Basically, the idea is there, if we can find peace and we can settle this thing without doing harm, especially to Absalom, of course, Let's do that. And when you find that the end of the battle comes, when when the conflict is there, and many have already died, they call out and say, are we going to stop this murderous stuff or not? Set a plan of attack and even the conditions on it. Know the level of the conflict and who is on your side. Don't be caught with just a knife in a gunfight. Give it your very best. But always be ready. Put yourself together and be ready. Isn't that what Peter challenges? 1 Peter 3.15 Be ready to give an answer to those who ask you concerning the hope that is in you. You've got to think and know what you're facing and deal with. And number four is this. Accept the consequences. Good or bad. When you make a decision, when you go into it, when you face it, accept the consequences. You made a decision, here's the way we're going to go. Here's how we're going to handle it. And when it comes out good, you feel good. When it comes out bad, you say, well, we didn't make a good choice. Let's regroup and let's try again. 
You accept the consequences. Benefits are easy. But when collateral damage is there, it's tough. You've heard me say, and I've mentioned so many times, I, I detest 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10 when Paul writes, Demas has left me. Demas was a co-worker. Demas had been with him. Demas had seen things that, that Paul was going through. Demas had been an evangelist, a teacher, right along with him. Demas had been right there in the forefront. But there comes a point that Demas wasn't ready to face what Paul was facing. And as Paul pushes himself forward and is not fearful for his own life, Demas is. Sometimes when we go into battle, not everybody's ready to go with us. There's a great story, story of one of the judges. Gideon faces that. David even faces that at one point. Some of them said, I'm tired. I've got to stay behind. We accept the consequences of the choices we make and the end results of them as well. And let me give you one more. Move forward. Move forward. He didn't just go back and stay. Move forward. We've got to be thinking and planning ahead. I think David said it best, not on this occasion. But perhaps, again, one of the probably two lowest points in David's life. With the death of the child, with the death of the child that Bathsheba had borne to him. With the death of that child, those who were around him were amazed when David found out that he got up, refreshed himself, cleaned up, and began to eat as he hadn't done for some time. And they were amazed at what he was doing. But basically David said, I'm moving forward. For he said, but now he is dead, speaking of the child, but now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David understood something, I think, that we need to understand. Move forward. Don't stay where you are. Move forward. We cannot stop the progression. You know, I was, was at a funeral, helped with a funeral on Friday, just thinking about this. And I was thinking about the people that were there at the funeral, the lady had been a member at the Drexel congregation. Of course, she'd been away from them for quite a number of years. Did you ever notice how the people you're away from, you freeze them in your thoughts? They stay that age permanently. And I go and I meet with this family, and the girls that I had known as teenage girls are now beginning to be grandmothers and their mother has passed away, and I look at them, and I said to them, and I said, in my mind, you're still those teenage girls. But now they're very mature women. Isn't that the way it is in life? It's moving forward, whether we want it to or not. And let me add one more thing to this whole thing. Let me add one more thing. And you may think I've just totally lost my mind. I said, Rush, you didn't, you didn't, if you were thinking, so I hope, see, now you were thinking this way. Let me attribute this to you. You were thinking, I did, you weren't really, but I left something out, didn't I? There's something I left out, something that's not in the list, something that is missing here that should have been first on the list, shouldn't it have been? Trust God. No. It's the overriding thing. It's the umbrella of it all. 
It was the hallmark of David in his life. Trust God. It wasn't something he had to say, wait, we've got to make our list. First, we've got to say, okay, we're going to trust God. It was already there. He was already trusting God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He wrote the words and so many others. It was already there. And when that's in place, then the other things can be put into play. So my friends, what I mean by the title is that we often simply count the ones on our side. Follow the polling, if you want to call it that. But even in tough times, we can, there's no doubt, we can go forward. Wasn't that long ago I was wondering what in the world's going to happen to the church? We couldn't meet, we couldn't get together, at least we, we felt like we couldn't, and a lot of problems are there. What's going to happen to the church? Wait on me. Maybe you too. But I've got to believe that when we regroup and we come back, we come back stronger and better. If we keep number one in mind, trust God. Trust God. And then work the system as best we can. This, evening, uh, this morning we're going to sing a song of invitation.